you would open up your Bibles to the book of Esther, continuing on where we left off a few weeks ago in chapter 2, hearing now the story of Mordecai and the Lord's work in his life. But before we come to God's word, let us ask for the Lord's help. Father, we know that your word is breathed out by you, that there's much in it that is all in it is profitable for us. Lord, our weaknesses, our infirmities, our sin, hard-heartedness would want to keep us from being profited tonight. So Lord, we pray that you would overcome our weaknesses, that you would overcome my weaknesses, and that you would teach us, and you would instruct and lead us to yourself. And so that is our prayer and our confident hope. And we pray all of this in the name of your Son, who was the Word. Amen. Amen. As I said, Esther chapter 2, beginning in verse 19, reading through the end of the chapter. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told it to the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. This is the word of the Lord. Now, one of the most common questions that you will likely get from those who are skeptical about the Christian faith is, if God is both all-powerful and all-loving, then why do bad things still happen out in the world? And sometimes that question can be sort of a false pretext, just putting up a wall for someone who doesn't really want to submit their lives to Christ. But very often, that person isn't putting up a wall or, or wrestling with some abstract pain out there in the world. They're, they're dealing with very real hurts and very real suffering in their own lives. Sometimes that hurt has left them so disoriented that they have no way to resolve the existence of God and the existence of their pain. So they conclude that, well, there must not be a God if this is happening to me because the suffering just feels way too real. And so I can't make sense of a God who would allow this to happen. This isn't just a skeptic's way, uh, a non-Christian way of processing pain. It's a very common way that we process pain here in the church as well. 
Suffering in the church produces the same sort of questions. Think how often does discomfort produce doubt and despair lead to disbelief and crises of faith? People in the church read all the triumphant passages of Scripture. And they think, I, I don't see myself here. This, this doesn't feel like it's happening to me. Is this really true of me? Passages like Joshua 1.9, Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You think, I feel pretty dismayed. Is, is God actually with me? St. Paul's great statement, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. A lot of people feel like I can't make it through this day. Is Christ really at work in me? They hear Jesus' promises in the Sermon on the Mount of blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Think, I don't feel very comforted. I don't know where God's at. Maybe he's actually forgotten about me. Undoubtedly, there's many of us in this room who, who have experienced some form of pain and some form of these doubts at one time or another. Maybe it's when the cancer came or when healing from some infirmity didn't happen quickly. Or when a loved one was taken too soon, when a child walked away from the faith, or when a relationship broke down, or when a marriage got hard. It's these seasons that is incredibly common for our faith to waver because we don't actually think God is there for us. You know, maybe He's out there doing good things for everyone else, but He doesn't seem to be doing them. For me. This evening, whatever amount it feels like, God may or may not be active in your life. The book of Esther reminds us that even when God appears most silent, we can still hold on to the hope that He is at work even in our lives. So this evening, we're going to look at the life of Mordecai to help give us the blueprints for building our hope upon God, even when our circumstances appear, appear hopeless. We're going to see Mordecai's role, his rescue, and his rejection, and consider what God might be up to in all of those stages. So first, let us consider Mordecai's role to understand where we're at in the story of Esther. And picked up again in verse 19, says, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, and commentators really are, are kind of stumped at, at what this second gathering refers to. The best guess is that this was shortly after that Esther had been made queen. Remember, uh, King Ahasuerus puts out an edict, bring all of the young, single, beautiful women to me, and we're going to have a contest to see who gets to be made queen. And Esther is chosen. 
So perhaps this is sometime after Esther has been selected, and yet there are still women being brought in from all around the vast province. And so they're just fulfilling the king's royal edict. They're still being brought forward to be selected. Perhaps a new queen can arise in Esther's place. That's the best guess of what might be happening. But regardless, we know this is sometime after Esther has been made queen. And we see that what has happened to Mordecai. It says Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai, just as when she was brought up by him. So again, the author is reminding us of this broader theme in this book, that Esther's identity as a Jew has not yet been made known. And that even as she is queen over all of Persia, she is obeying her uncle, and she is still yet made known her faith to her husband, the king. It's a theme we talked about last time. And it's one that is going to be important for this story in the coming chapters. But tonight, we're going to actually set that theme aside. What I want you to see about Mordecai is where he was at as these events unfolded. Again, it said that he was sitting at the king's gate. Now we get to do some ancient archaeology here this evening. So put on your Indiana Jones hat, get out your trusty whip, and let's go back in time to ancient Persia. What is so important about this gate? Well, the citadel in Susa was this sort of massive palace complex. If you've ever been to a really, really small college campus, you can sort of think of it like that. You've got your, your dormitories over here in this building, and then you've got some offices where all of the king's officials would meet and gather and conduct their business. Over here, you'd have sort of this great hall where you would feast and entertain all of your guests. There was the throne room where the king would sit on his throne and, and hold court and welcome in his officials. And then there's all these massive courtyards in between outdoor spaces and around all of this is this massive wall that protects the city. Now, the gate being referred to here in Esther chapter 2 uh, has actually been discovered by archaeologists. And it, and it wasn't so much a sort of set of doors as it was a massive building that was the main entrance into the city, or at least the citadel, the, the capital complex in Susa. This gate was about 130 feet long by about 100 feet wide. So you sort of take the length of the sanctuary and double it, take the width and triple it. It was this massive building, and on either side were two rooms where more offices were held with staircases. You could go up to a second floor and up to the roof. So this is a massive building where all of the king's officials would actually gather to conduct royal business. So why do I give us that archaeology lesson? Well, the fact that Mordecai is twice said to be sitting at the king's gate is important for us. It doesn't mean that he was a loitering 
tourist, just kind of trying to get a peek into palace life. It actually suggests that he has been promoted into a role as a servant of the king. And so now he is integrally situated in palace life. That's the importance of his role. So Mordecai is sitting in the gate. He's actually one of the king's officials, could have still been a lower level servant, but now he has a place in the palace. The Lord's providence, he's placed Mordecai in the gate. I think for one, so he can actually still have access to Esther. He can still know how she doing? she's doing. Remember earlier in chapter two, it said that, that he was trying to see into the court where she was being held so that he could know how things were going for her. There was a worry over her. And so at least it seems in Lord's providence, he's been put in a place where he can speak with her. Later on in this story, he actually goes and tells her this plot has been made against the king. So the Lord has been kind to Mordecai. Yes, he has lost his daughter. She's been removed from him. But in the Lord's kindness, it is still possible for Mordecai to keep in contact with her. And it's important for us because I think often we become so fixated on the things that we don't have, we can often lose sight of the things that we do. I think Mordecai could have said, ah, this, this niece of mine, this, this niece who I've raised as a daughter has been ripped from my home and could have focused solely on that loss and missed that the Lord still put him in a position to be with her, to still give her advice, to still counsel her, to still hear from her. How often does our own pain crowd out all of the other ways that the Lord seems to be working in our lives. We just think, oh, th- this, this one thing that I don't yet have, this request that I'm still making and the Lord has not yet answered, and we forget all of the other ways that he has blessed us, that he is still blessing us, all of the things that he is still doing, all of the graces, all of the mercies that he still provides. Don't let the pain Crowd out your full field of vision. Go back to the reminders of the Lord's grace in your life. So we see the Lord has been kind to Mordecai. We're also reminded that in the Lord's providence, he placed Mordecai at the gate because he had a great purpose for him there. So that he might actually be in the right place at the right time to discover a plot to assassinate the king, which brings us to his rescue. Again, it says, in those days, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, and Big Thin and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. So he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told it to the king in the name of Mordecai. And the Bible doesn't tell us why these two servants wanted to harm the king. It just tells us that this plot came to the knowledge of Mordecai. 
And it's interesting in the way this story is unfolding that it doesn't say that Mordecai discovered the plot. It doesn't say that he showed some cunning detective work and, and, and he worked to actually foil the plot. No, it says this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. He's passive. And once again, the Bible is highlighting the hand of God at work in this story. Mordecai received this information because God made it so. Yes, Mordecai would have been active in, in making decisions about what do I do with this information? Oh, they, they sounds like they're up to something shady. I'm just going to walk away. He, he had to be active in making decisions about what to do once he found out about the plot. He had to go and tell Esther. But Mordecai was in the place to receive this information because God put him there. It was in God's sovereignty that he was sitting at the gate. So after he receives this knowledge, he reports it to Esther, who reports it to the king, and the king's life is spared. These two men are put to death. It's saved because God put Mordecai in the gate. He had him at the exact place he wanted him to do the exact thing that he wanted to do with him. And God has you in the exact place that he wants you to do exactly what he wants to do with you. It's easy to forget sometimes. Think, oh, this season, this is a waste. God couldn't possibly be doing anything to redeem this. But think for a moment. Whose lives are you in a position to affect because God has placed you exactly where he wants you? How might this season be preparing you to better serve and better minister to others who will experience the very same things? There's a lot of young parents right now that are just in the dog days of parenting. You've got infants and toddlers and older kids who sometimes act like toddlers and just feels like you're not getting any sleep. Nobody's listening to you and just think, what are we going to do for the next 18 years? These days are hard. The Lord has placed you at this gate to disciple those young souls. He has you here. And how many young adults may have this subtle sting of loneliness, longing for the day when you're married? I encourage you, don't despise these days of singleness. And remember that the Lord has placed you in this season. Might it be that he's given you now more freedom to, to serve and minister to others in ways that you won't in a few years once you're married. Wherever you are, whatever season the Lord has you in, do not forget that he has placed you exactly where you are and has a perfect purpose for you in it. Our job is to seek to be faithful and our trust and our obedience to him in that 
season, keeping our eyes open. How might he be seeking to use me where he has me? How might he be seeking to teach me by what is going on around me? Lord put Mordecai in the gate. He had a perfect purpose for him in it. It's one more point for us as we consider God's purpose in directing our lives, and we actually see it in Mordecai's rejection. You might be asking yourself, what rejection saved the king's life? His men are hanged. We see that at the end of this, Mordecai's name is recorded in the history of the king in his own presence. But that's all that happens. Nothing else. King just moves on with his business. Normally, such loyalty to the king would have been met with vast rewards and praise from the king. We're going to see that in just a few chapters. That's the reward that you get for saving the king's life. But here, chapter 2, Mordecai does his duty. He reports this plot to the king. He saves the king's life. And he gets nothing. Rejected. It's not just some small oversight. Think of a secret service agent took a bullet for the president and then his supervisor asked him the next day, hey, why, why aren't you at work? That's the type of oversight that is happening. There's no medal. There's no ceremony. There's no praise. Palace life just kind of moves on without Mordecai's reward. No reward, no recognition. Life just keeps marching on. And in fact, the next promotion that we actually hear about in the book of Esther is an enemy of Mordecai. So it would be right for Mordecai here to feel dejected, to feel inferior, to feel insignificant and passed over. Think, what's God doing? Does he just left me here as this measly servant at Save the Life of the King and just nothing? What could God be up to? And I wonder if that happened to a friend of ours today, how would you counsel them? What would you say? Just give them a little self-esteem boost. Oh no, you're so great. You did a wonderful thing and just kind of pat them on the back. Oh, everybody loves you. Do you join them in their anger? I can't believe they did that to you. What, what are they thinking? They're a bunch of morons. You saved the king's life. How could they? Do you help them devise a plan? Now, here's what we need to do to fix this. Here's all the steps that you've got to take to set this wrong right. Listen, those could all be part of an appropriate response. But what do all of those responses need to first flow out of? That though they have been rejected, though they've been forgotten by the world, you have not been forgotten or rejected by God. He sees. He knows. He is up to something. Undoubtedly, Mordecai would have been feeling very despondent. The king has left him high and dry. 
And Esther hasn't done anything to advocate on his behalf. She just kind of said, hey, Mordecai helped, left it alone. But in the Lord's providence, this rejection, this despondency becomes one of the first great reversals in the entire book of Esther. For in due time, God will take this rejection and use it for the vindication of Mordecai in the face of his greatest enemy. And undoubtedly happens at the exact right time that God intends for it to happen. So this reversal that will take place is not going to be a happy coincidence. It will be pure providence. I think God's reigning and he is governing all of our affairs for our good. We often think God's timing is not perfect. God doesn't know what he's doing. He he must not be up to something because it's just taking too long. Undoubtedly, Mordecai probably felt that God was taking too long. But God's timing is perfect. And he is redeeming all things for our good. So let me tie this snapshot of Mordecai's life back to our opening question. How do we keep the pain of life from turning into doubts of faith? When you're you're in these moments of crisis, your faith begins to waver. You think that there's no way that God is actually working to redeem my situation. There's no way that he's going to turn this sorrow into joy. It's in those moments, Satan loves to whisper that little lie. God doesn't see you. God doesn't love you. He's done with you. He's got nothing left in your story. If God cared, he would have saved you from this by now. He can't be trusted. He's not in control. And Satan lies in those moments of crisis. Don't buy a word of it. The entire history of Scripture is a history and a reminder that God's main relationship to his people is that of a redeemer. Sometimes it's an immediate redemption. Like when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead just after a couple of days. Sometimes it's a little longer. Like when Mordecai finally has to wait for his rewards. Sometimes it's years. Like when Joseph gets sold into slavery into Egypt. Or when David flees from his son Absalom. Sometimes it's millennia. Like when God first promised to Adam that he was going to raise up one of his offspring to crush the head of the serpent and redeem his people. And sometimes God's redemption 
doesn't come until after you die. And you go to the grave awaiting his rescue. Our own Savior wept in the Garden of Gethsemane, asking, Lord, would you please, if it's possible, take this cup from me. And he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he left there. And he endured the agony of the cross until he breathed his final breath. Because he knew that his father had set a joy before him that would not be taken away. Christ went to the grave awaiting a redemption. And God redeemed him. He raised him three days later as the first fruits of our redemption. So some of you, you may indeed carry your suffering all the way through this life into the grave. I promise you that you can still make it there if you remember the hope that you have on the other side of death. And as you learn to cling to that hope, as you, as you learn to set your gaze upon that hope, you'll find that it begins to break in. Even into this life, even into all of the trials, all of the crises, that hope begins to come in when you set your sight upon it. Paul's thorn was never removed, but he could still say that he found the secret to contentment, which is his in Christ. It is the promise that he has in Christ. So we all need to be reminded that our story is not being written by a set of coincidences that are uncontrollable, not being written by an unobserved, uninterested deity. Oh, God has written every line on every page. And even if you can't make sense of the script that he is writing, he can. He is working all things for our good. You just have to keep the book open, keep waiting on him in hope. And he will redeem you. Maybe in this life, certainly in the next. For his delay is not a sign of his disregard. If your father hears you, he sees you, and he is coming to make all things right. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this story. It's not just a, a story, it is history. We thank you for the glimpse we get into your sovereign care, your sovereign working over all events of history, even our own. So Lord, would you help us cling to that promise and to cling to you? And would you help us know that you are working all things together, even our suffering, for our good in your own perfect time? We thank you that we have this shown to us in Christ. We pray that you would help us to cling to
to him and to his promises. Let's go all this in his name. Amen.